This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hello, everybody. Before we get started, I just need to say there are two factual errors at the beginning of this episode. I took a walk through Westminster Abbey and recorded some notes on my phone, and I did that while I was looking at grave markers for some really famous people. Unfortunately, I didn't realize that some of the people are not actually buried there. Those are just there to remember some great British people. So, as it turns out, C.S. Lewis is buried in a church near Oxford, and Michael Faraday is buried in Highgate Cemetery, London. I didn't fix it in the episode, I just thought I would add this correction on the beginning. Okay, enjoy this episode. This episode is part of a long series that explores the rise of Christian fundamentalism in the United States through the life of William Jennings Bryan. It can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back to the beginning of season five. What you're about to hear is from a video I took on vacation to London, England. I was there with my good friend Jackie, who longtime listeners may recognize, and my buddy Luke. Yeah, what are we where are we at, Jackie? We're at Westminster Abbey, which is amazing. Westminster Abbey, the place where kings and queens go to get married. A big, beautiful church built in 1065 by Edward the Confessor. Is this where they filmed Downton Abbey? I think so. <laughs> <Maybe>. <laughs> I'm trying to see if I can get a really bad look out of Luke. I don't know. Now, go negative. easy. Uh, Not only am I a podcaster, but I'm also an improv comedian and can't help but try to crack jokes. Anyhow, the next day, Jackie and I decided to go inside the church and have a look. It's a great audio tour, by the way, and describes all kinds of symbolism and some of the many statues. Westminster is the final resting place for nobles, royals, and famous people. C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite composers, Ralph Vaughan Williams, and famous missionary, David Livingston. You might remember him from the King Leopold's Ghost episode from last season. Many scientists are remembered there. Isaac Newton, Michael Faraday, and one that genuinely surprised me, Charles Darwin. All right, so I am in Westminster Abbey, talking very quietly into my cell phone, uh, but we are standing right near the marker of Charles Robert Darwin. It's funny that to see, be in Westminster Abbey and see the tomb of a man who so many Protestant evangelicals credit with their persecution, quote-unquote persecution, in the United States. It's a beautiful gravestone. I've taken a picture. I'll post it on the website. Known as just a few hundred feet from the entrance. It's one of the first things you see when you come here, and tourists are, it seems, almost constantly taking pictures of him. It seems to be Darwin's stone that people are most drawn to here. Kind of a surprise. How many Protestant evangelicals gnash their teeth when they think of this man? And here he is, remembered in the floor of one of the most visited churches in the world. Now, what led this man to being remembered in this way? Starting in 1832, Charles Darwin, then just 22 years old, circumnavigated the globe aboard the HMS Beagle. The journey was an arduous one, marked with seasickness. When on land, he spent a lot of his time alone, 
enchanted by worms and spiders, troubled by a parasitic wasp that cached caterpillars so they could be eaten alive by its grubs. Darwin was shaken by the brutality he saw, fighting a rebellion in Uruguay, and hearing stories of the elimination of the pompous people. Trying to reconcile in his brain the difference between Christian, quote-unquote, civilized people and the natives. Could they, too, be civilized? He found fossils of extinct animals, watched a volcano erupt, witnessed an earthquake, and the aftermath of the resulting tidal wave. He marveled at the birds and tortoises on the Galapagos Islands. It wasn't until he returned to England that his ideas on evolution began to take shape. It took two decades before his book On the Origins of Species by Means of Natural Selection appeared in print, years in which an anti-cleric spirit permeated London society. Evolution haunted Darwin. He said that believing in evolution was like confessing a murder. Enemies of the Anglican Church used evolution, which Darwin didn't invent, by the way, against the church and were jailed for blasphemy. Not only did his studies risk his freedom, but also his vast wealth. By 1851, he lost what remained of his faith when his daughter died of typhoid. His seminal book was published in friendlier times in 1859, partially because he was worried someone else was about to announce their own similar theory. On the Origin of Species set forth his ideas about natural selection. God willing, we'll talk more about competing ideas of evolution later this season. Darwin's innovation that organisms adapt to their environment based on selectively reproducing changes in their genetic makeup didn't stop with him, or stay contained within the realm of science. It, too, evolved, seeping into cultural questions of the day. Germany, Spain, Britain, the United States, and many others would face difficult questions sparked by Darwin. If we humans were adapted from similar stock, did that mean that some of us were superior to others, further adapted? Could those less quote-unquote civilized amongst us be taught modern notions and practices, or was it hopeless? And was it correct or even moral for Anglo-Saxons to rule those quote-unquote less evolved? You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin. And this is Truce. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
here are some really, really tough questions. Be honest with yourself. You don't need to share your answers with anyone else. Let's do some self-examination. Is one race better than another? Is one religion? If so, which one? And in which ways? Is one economic system better than another? Is one system of governance, like a democratic republic in the United States, or socialism, or monarchy, or theocracy, or communism, best? I'll put those questions in your show notes in case you want to revisit them. Now that you've got those massive questions in your head, let's go one step further. If you think that one race, economic system, way of governing, or religion is better, and you happen to have a stake in one of those, do you have a duty to spread your way of doing things? If so, how? Maybe passing out flyers, evangelism, having a ton of babies so your bloodline continues, Are you willing to go to war to disseminate your ideas? What about to defend them? These are big questions. Questions that have shaped the history of the world. They certainly drove the last decades of the 1800s. One way of answering those questions was with a resounding yes. These guys said there is a superior race, economic system, governing model, and religion. This was the belief held by those who subscribe to social Darwinism. Roughly, it's taking the natural selection idea from Charles Darwin and applying it to society. If some of us have adapted to be more civilized, living in houses, designing great architecture, writing music, worshiping the right god, then we must be genetically superior to those less enlightened people. Once you buy into that concept, you can use it to justify a lot of behavior, even behaviors that seem to contradict each other. There were, there were two different competing interpretations of social Darwinism. We've heard this season from a Chris Evans who is not an Avenger and now a Paul McCartney who is not a Beatle. My name is Paul McCartney. I, I'm not the singer one. Next week, get ready for humanities professor and theologian Elvis Presley. I'm just kidding. McCartney is a professor of political science at Towson University, and he's written about the War of 1898, especially the role Christians played. This war or series of wars, depending on how you view it, are emblematic of what was to come and set the stage for fundamentalism. One strand actually informed the anti-imperialists, and that was the, the individualist kind of social Darwinism that Government intervention in society inevitably upsets the natural competition. For those social Darwinists like William Graham Sumner, who who became a pretty leading anti-imperialist, there was a recognition that a successful imperial policy required a large act of government, which was antithetical in their philosophy to a just Darwinian order. This first interpretation of social Darwinism was essentially a libertarian one. Government should stop coddling people because it disrupts natural selection. If governments intervene, the cream doesn't rise to the top. And since, in this view, government is against the betterment of the species, we should oppose the expansion of empire. Because then governments only get more powerful. That's the anti-imperialist view. Then there was the second view of social Darwinism. 
the more popular of the two and the one that William Jennings Bryan opposed to his dying day. It advocates that governments should build up their empires, should be more powerful. This is the social Darwinism of Brooks Adams, Henry Cabot Lodge, and Teddy Roosevelt. Darwinism not only exists between individuals, but it exists between nation states. So there's a Darwinian competition between states, and if you do not advance, then you fall behind. There's a competition not just for survival, but to be at the forefront. That is an important nugget. Not only under this theory can organisms evolve, but so can nations. Either your nation is getting more civilized, more cultured, let's have some tea and go to the opera, bigger, better, faster, stronger, or it's falling behind. Come on, guys, wait up! Nations, then, have an obligation to rise higher on the food chain. In Teddy Roosevelt's estimation, it was the duty of civilized countries to take a paternalistic position. Not just to destroy other peoples, there was definitely a lot of that, but also to teach others our modern ways. Social Darwinism, then, could be a means by which to spread, quote-unquote, civilization. And at this time, it was the age of competing imperialisms. Britain and Germany spread their influence around the globe. The French were in Indochina, laying the foundation for what would become the Vietnam War. King Leopold II of Belgium established his secret slave system in Congo to harvest rubber. And the United States expanded across the West and into Mexico. The Spanish-American War would be a bold move for the United States, claiming lands across the open water, not attached to the mainland. In the late 1800s, colonies were a sign of power. Really, most importantly, is because it pervaded all aspects of American thought and culture, the Darwinian mindset shaped views of, of race, and race was a very fine-tuned science of the time, I and mean, we would say it's a pseudoscience now because it was, where, for example, in going into war against Spain, part of the justification was that they were an inferior race, the, you know, the Anglo-Saxons versus the Spanish race. Forgetting, of course, the Cubans and Filipinos who were caught in the middle. These American macho men wanted to go toe-to-toe with Spain, a nation on the decline as a global power. Um, so we were more advanced. There was the, the, a religious connotation of God had chosen America to lead to the, the progress of mankind. And all packaged together between race and religion and liberal democratic norms, you know, like enlightenment thinking, the U.S. was the embodiment of the highest ideal of all. And so anytime the U.S. replaced another people, another governing system, it was by definition, because it was the U.S. doing it, improving it and taking it to a higher level. God gave us the superior form of government. If you viewed the U.S. as a Christian nation, God's people with God's ordained democratic system, then this could make sense. We were the superior beings. It was seen as our duty to spread our way of doing things. It absolutely conditioned Americans to view opportunities to expand as, as morally good, not, not just okay and justified, but a positive benefit to, to mankind. The 1890s brought with them a desire for war. Not just war with Spain, but like any war. Theodore Roosevelt, 
not yet the politician he'd become, and his friend Senator Henry Cabot Lodge were two such men. Together, they wrote a book aimed at young boys called Hero Tales in 1895, a collection of 26 short biographies, each aimed at inspiring young boys to greatness, most of them about dudes in combat. Decades removed from the Civil War and with many of the battles with Native Americans in the past, some Americans feared that men were growing soft. Women exerted more influence on society, which some saw as a threat to manhood. Roosevelt and Lodge read a highly influential book of its time, Alfred Thayer Mahan's The Influence of Sea Power Upon History. In it, Mahan argues that the Anglo-Saxon race could best dominate the world by sea power. One author referred to Mahan as the most influential naval officer in history. His ideas were so far-reaching that Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany claimed he wanted to learn it by heart and sent a copy to every ship under his command. Senator Lodge, inspired by the book, spoke on the Senate floor for three days in 1895, preaching what he termed the large policy. In it, he laid out his desire for the United States to take Hawaii, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and build the Panama Canal. It is the sea power which is essential to the greatness of every splendid people. We are a great people. We control this continent. We are dominant in this hemisphere. We have too great an inheritance to be trifled with or parted with. It is ours to guard and to extend. He and Roosevelt were called Jingos and relished in the title. Their social Darwinism and those of men like them taught that if we were superior in our society, race, and economics, we were then justified in using war to spread those ideas. Now, that is a tidy little box to fit all this into. That people champed at the bit to go to war, so we invented a reason to fight with Spain. Perhaps on trumped-up reasons involving our superiority to the Spanish people. And that's how we entered the Spanish-American War. But it's rare that tiny boxes really do a good job of presenting a full picture. It's true that expansionism was in the air. It's just not the full story. For one, yeah, Roosevelt was ready to go to war, but he didn't have the ability to declare war. At least, not yet. Lodge was just one member of the Senate. They may not have caused this thing to go forward, but they serve here as a kind of barometer. They are emblematic of others. Second, Spain was also doing terrible things in Cuba. In response, the Cuban people stirred a nationalist revolt, hoping to seize control of their land. Spain was engaged in some, some pretty heinous activities in trying to put down the Cuban insurrection. Spain invented concentration camps. They were rounding up the population and putting them into camps and Estimates today are about 100,000 Cuban people died from them, from disease and malnutrition and so forth, because it would also you know, burn down the fields and stuff. At the time, Americans believed four or 500,000 people. Spain burned villages and farms, stashing Cubans in camps. In the States, newsmakers like William Randolph Hearst used the build-up to war to sell papers. Maybe tweaking the numbers here and there to conjure a more compelling story, this being the time of yellow journalism. 
Now, people like to say our era is unprecedented in sensationalist news. No, it's not. I mean, it's bad, but hardly new. Despite the hype, legitimate abuses were happening in Cuba. Spain beat back people who wanted control of their own country. Now, ask yourself. How can we let this morally retrograde country do this 90 miles from our shore? What kind of country are we to let this happen? We have a duty to intervene to stop this. That's what people said when they read about the atrocities going on in Cuba. It wasn't just politicians and papers who encouraged an entrance into the fray. Preachers were very enthusiastic in pushing this line forward. Which may come as a shock. Ministers standing before their congregations and advocating for war. It wasn't the first time, of course. I mean, think of the Crusades. Some preachers advocated the American Revolution, though not nearly all. Those of us alive for the start of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan can probably remember radio pastors talking up an invasion. When it came to Spain, it wasn't driven just by, you know, the desire to be nice or to help our neighbors, or even just the old-fashioned urge to conquer. Some preachers tied it to their own form of social Darwinism. The Darwinian mindset was universal. Every organized discipline of research framed what they did through Darwinian lenses. Including members of the clergy, which to me is wild. I grew up thinking of Darwinism purely in scientific terms. Or maybe hearing ministers talk trash about evolution. I certainly didn't hear them using Darwinism to justify going to war. But they did in the late 1800s. What I think is probably the decisive event leading into the war was the speech by Senator Redfield Proctor. Proctor visited Cuba on a fact-finding mission. Upon returning to the Senate, he delivered his speech without emotion, outlining disease, starvation, and cruelty to the silent chamber. It was this speech that turned the minds of many in the crowd. With large families, or with more than one in this little space, the commonest sanitary provisions are impossible. Conditions are unmentionable in this respect. Torn from their homes with foul earth, foul air, foul water, and foul food, or none. What wonder that one half have died and that one quarter of the living are so diseased that they cannot be saved. A form of dropsy is a common disorder resulting from these conditions. Little children are still walking about with arms and chests terribly emaciated, eyes swollen, and abdomen bloated to three times the natural size. The physicians say these cases are hopeless. Deaths in the streets have not been uncommon. I was told by one of our consuls that people had been found dead about the markets in the morning where they had crawled hoping to get some stray bits of food from the early hucksters and that there had been cases where they had dropped dead inside the market, surrounded by food. It was one thing to learn about suffering, but suffering isn't always enough to get the U.S. to fight. There is another event that nudged the United States to war, the sinking of the Maine. It was February 15, 1898, an American ship patrolled the waters off the coast of Cuba, the HMS Maine. America was on alert. The German Navy hovered somewhere nearby, waiting for Cuba to fall so they could swoop in, claiming it for their own. 
It was also there to keep an eye on the Spanish Empire, their concentration camps in Cuba, and to protect American interests on the island. At 9.40 p.m., the ship exploded. Gunpowder ignited, killing 268 men by the flame, shrapnel, or by drowning. A month later, the Naval Court of Inquiry established that the ship was destroyed by a mine. They didn't blame anyone in particular, but Americans believed Spain was responsible. We know now that that is not the case. The ship's designers made a seemingly obvious mistake by keeping the gunpowder in the chamber next to the coal. A fire in the coal room meant an almost guaranteed explosion. A fact Roosevelt, as the assistant secretary of the Navy, had been warned about the very day of the sinking. It didn't matter. Americans were ready for a fight. Proctor's speech, delivered just a few weeks after the explosion, nudged them in that direction. And I think that this position, and especially the segue into supporting imperialism, was made much easier by the fact that the the decisive battles were really quick, easy, and painless. So we, you know, we wiped out Spain's Pacific fleet in about five hours with no casualties, and then we wiped out their Atlantic fleet in a battle of similar length with only one casualty. So it was like, well, God, God ordained us to do this, clearly. You know, we are the vessel by which we can replace Spain's backwards, decrepit, medieval rule over these poor people with our own. Though the fighting in Cuba was over relatively quickly, it was not the end. Not by a long shot. Not only did we take Cuba, but also the Philippines as well as Puerto Rico. To me, this has always seemed like a weird logical leap. The fight for independence was in Cuba. Why did the U.S. occupy a chain of islands on the other side of the world? There happens to be a really interesting theory I would never have guessed myself. As you know, the U.S. was in a constant state of economic turmoil. Steep gains followed by sharp losses. Recession after recession. There were lots of ideas about why the U.S. kept falling into these nasty downturns. One was the glut theory. One of the theories explaining the, the economic hardship at the time was the glut theory, that there was a glut of goods and we needed an outlet for them. We needed a place to send them. And China had really um, come on the radar as the place to put them. And so the Philippines and Hawaii, which were not part of the war, but which we adopted as a colony during a few months of war was going on, were seen as way stations for projecting our force across the Pacific. This fit nicely into Henry Cabot Lodge's large policy. It wasn't imperialism like the British. Instead, Lodge envisioned American possessions around the world protecting open trade. If the Americans kept getting in economic trouble because we had too many goods sitting around with no outlet, trade with other countries could be the key. So yeah, the U.S. jumped in to help Cuba. But the Philippines were an appetizing gateway to China. If we took control of the Philippines from Spain, we'd open up trade in Asia. In the minds of some, that was more than enough reason to grab the Philippines as well. Then there was the desire from corporations to oust the Spanish from Cuba. The HMS Maine had been there in part 
to protect corporate interests. You know, the sugar trusts who were politically very well connected and they were, so with the reconcentration policy in Spain, burning all the crops, they were burning the crops of a lot of American corporations. The sugar industry benefited from us taking control of Cuba and protecting their holdings. If we could get goods to China via the Philippines and Hawaii, we could dominate economically. Not everyone had such a clear take on what to do. Like William Jennings Bryan, he had a complicated relationship with the war. Bryan was a lifelong enemy of social Darwinism. As a believer in the social gospel, he believed it was our God-given duty to help those less fortunate, not to conquer them. While not a pacifist, he opposed the horrors of war, preferring to broker peace whenever possible. But when it came to the Spanish-American War, Bryan was on board. Humanity demands that we must act. Cubans were, after all, suffering. He agreed on that point. But he didn't want to swoop in and keep Cuba. Bryan opposed the Republican drive to increase our standing army. He characterized militarism as an unchristian tool of the upper classes. In Congress, there was a vocal group that opposed the war, seeing the conflict in Cuba and the Philippines as against the best interests of the United States. But their reasons were not always so pure. Among those who opposed the imperial consequences were the most racist and the least racist. You know, the imperialists were they're just a generically racist, that we're better and we'll uplift you and aren't we good? You know, we're the nice superior race. But the hardcore racists were opposed because um, they said we cannot let these inferior races join the body politic. You know, there's no way they could, they could qualify for citizenship. All they'll do is degrade us and blah, blah, blah. In their minds, if we took Cuba, Puerto Rico, Hawaii, the Philippines, and more, what were we going to do with the people who lived there? Should they become citizens? Could white Americans accept a vast new population of brown-skinned people? Should we let them vote? Race was definitely a factor, as is maybe best and worst exemplified by a speech from South Carolina Senator Benjamin Tillman in 1899. With five exemptions, every man in this chamber who has had to do with the colored race in this country voted against the ratification of this treaty. It was not because we are Democrats, but because we understand and realize what it is to have two races side by side that cannot mix or mingle without deterioration and injury to both and the ultimate destruction of the civilization of the higher. We of the South have borne our white man's burden of a colored race in our midst since their emancipation and before. Oof. Later in his speech, he went on to say, Those people are not suited to our institutions. They are not ready for liberty as we understand it. They do not want it. The Democrats, again, the party of Jim Crow in those days, largely disproved of annexing the Philippines because it meant incorporating another race into the United States. An idea abhorrent to racists who had still not gotten used to the end of slavery. Then there is the question of Christians who supported the war. You may be surprised to learn that theological liberals were on board. The social gospelers very much supported it. Biblical modernists in general supported it. Seeing the war as a way to make society better for those less fortunate, the indigenous people of those lands. 
attitudes about war would eventually change in many Christian circles after World War I, a much more brutal, mechanized debacle. But in the late 1890s, they saw the quick end of the conflict in Cuba as a sign of American might and God's blessing on the United States, a country many viewed as a Christian nation. But of course, you know who wasn't excited? The locals. What happened with the Philippine-American War is Emilio Aguinaldo was a nationalist leader in the Philippines, and he recognized immediately that America defeating Spain was just replacing one colonial overlord with another. And he and then he led the Philippines in a re revolt against us. And one of the things that makes it ugly is one of the moral motivations of the U.S. engaging against Spain were, were those concentration camps in Cuba. And what the U.S. did was build their own concentration camps in the Philippines with the same effect. We killed hundreds of thousands of Philippines in these concentration camps. Uh, and engaged in all kinds of torture. There were, you know, there were military hearings, and not the people were found to engage in torture and stuff. I mean, it was an ugly, ugly war, and that war gets no attention. We became what we hated, possessing a people who did not want to be possessed. Because this story can't be simple and easy, it's worth noting that there were ships off the coast of the Philippines as well, German ships there's some evidence that Germany would have invaded had we not. They, too, were hungry for colonies. Still, the United States found itself in a precarious position, in control of an island on the other side of the Atlantic, filled with people who may or may not have wanted us there. The question of imperialism raged on. Men like Mark Twain and Andrew Carnegie joined anti-imperialism leagues. William Jennings Bryan turned his great oratory skills to speak against the evils of imperialism. History will vindicate the position taken by the United States in the war with Spain. In saying this, I assume that the principles which were invoked in the inauguration of the war will be observed in its prosecution and conclusion. If, however, a contest undertaken for the sake of humanity degenerates into a war of conquest, we shall find it difficult to meet the charge of having added hypocrisy to greed. Is our national character so weak that we cannot withstand the temptation to appropriate the first piece of land that comes within our reach? Later, he continued, To inflict upon the enemy all possible harm is legitimate warfare. But shall we contemplate a scheme for the colonization of the Orient merely because our ships won a remarkable victory in the harbor of Manila? Our guns destroyed a Spanish fleet, but can they destroy that self-evident truth that governments derive their just powers not from superior force, but from the consent of the governed? Brian once again occupies a funny place in history here. He was against imperialism, as his speech demonstrates, but he was not, as I said, against the war. No, in fact, he's, he served the Spanish-American War. This is Michael Kazin, author of A Godly Hero and a historian at Georgetown University. He was not a pacifist. He was, a, he was against war in almost every case, but he was not an out-and-out -out pacifist the way we think of pacifists now. I mean, after all, pacifists are opposed to using force for any reason. And, and he was not opposed to an ar having an army but he thought most wars were bad wars, and, and, and they should be mediation before wars could be uh, undertaken between 
parties that were in conflict. And that was an essential thing he pushed when he was Secretary of State. And he, he did oppose World War I until the U.S. got into it. Now, Spanish-American War, he thought the U.S. was justified in helping the Cubans to free themselves in Spanish rule. And he did enlist and he had his own regiment uh, from Nebraska that he raised. He didn't actually fight because uh, the regiment was uh, sent to Florida to train. A lot of the soldiers got malaria and other diseases down in Florida, and his regiment never got out of Florida. He was only there for the last two weeks of the war. Yeah, yeah. And he was, uh, but he liked to be called Colonel, <laughs> Colonel Bryan after that. And he's buried with his wife in Arlington National Cemetery. So uh, there were contradictions. <laughs> the war in Cuba was over quickly. Even then, McKinley kept Brian stationed in Florida, out of public sight, for an additional four months. So he could not campaign on behalf of others in the midterm elections. Brian spent the rest of his life opposing social Darwinism wherever he saw it. There are a lot of reasons I wanted to revisit this conflict today. These battles are an interesting counterpoint to World War I, which we're getting to soon. That war would exacerbate the modernist fundamentalist controversy, kicking a hornet's nest and keeping Christians of different denominations from working together. Americans went from being pro-imperialism during the Spanish-American War to anti-imperialism during World War I. The Spanish-American War fit with the vision of the social gospel, one people helping another. World War I, on the other hand, was a convoluted war without a clear reason for happening, a mechanized hellscape unlike anything ever seen. It served to confirm the suspicions of the pre-millennialists that world history was trending downward. Two different wars, one for the supposed betterment of humanity, the other a warning before the end. I'm also drawn to the story because of the role it played in the imagination of some believers. They saw the war in Cuba not just as a conflict, but also as a mission field. One reason so many members of the clergy were excited for battle is that it would evangelize the natives. Through war and teaching the natives the way of the United States, we could win more souls for Christ. Or so the logic went. This conflict coincided with a boom in missions, spurred by guys like D.L. Moody, the most famous preacher of his day. These days, it seems perverse to conquer someone in order to tell them about a god who laid down his life for the redemption of mankind. Back then, some Christians justified the war by the souls they could save. Third, when we last discussed this war in Season 3, I mentioned that Teddy Roosevelt is lifted up in a lot of men's ministries as the uber-male. An example of what true manhood looks like. A fighter, a cowboy on a horse, someone who never shies away from a battle. I think that canonizing him in our men's ministry curriculum is a mistake. He believed wholeheartedly in social Darwinism, that we are superior and therefore must assert our dominance in order to spread our ways. Are we really okay with this guy being lifted up in men's groups? I'm not sure we should be. Our example is the son of a carpenter who willingly set aside his life to make a way for others, not a mustachioed dandy who loved war. I wanted to do this episode to stress the dangers of social Darwinism, a problem, by the way, that was about to get a lot worse on the world stage. We'll get there soon. When we're considering the kind of people we want to be, maybe a rough rider shouldn't be the goal, but a man who laid down his life for his friends.
Special thanks to Paul T. McCartney, author of Power and Progress, American National Identity, The War of 1898, and The Rise of American Imperialism. He teaches at Towson University. Thanks also to Michael Kazin, author of A Godly Hero. I'll have a list of sources in your show notes and on the website at truthpodcast.com, along with discussion questions if you'd like to talk this over at the dinner table or with your friends. Truce is listener-supported. If you'd like to be a part of this crazy, insane show that asks huge questions, become a patron. By giving a little each month, you gain access to cool bonuses like more with Paul McCartney. This episode took weeks and weeks to produce while maintaining my full-time job. If you want more quality Christian content and to help me get a tiny bit of free time, visit trucepodcast.com slash donate. Thanks to my vocal performers today. B.T. Stevenson with his rich radio voice, Nick Starin, Melvin Benson of the Cinematic Doctrine podcast, and Eric Estep with the City on the Hill podcast. Thanks also to Jackie and Luke for their role in the tour of Westminster. God willing, we'll talk again in two weeks. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. This episode is brought to you by The Compelled Podcast. What would you do if you came face-to-face with a murderer sent to kill you for being a Christian? For Virginia Prodan, that question isn't hypothetical. Virginia was a small, petite attorney defending Christians in court in communist Romania. And she was really good. So good, in fact, she caught the attention of the communist regime. One day, a tall, muscular man walked into her office, closed the door, and pulled out a gun. He barked, Shut up. Sit down. I'm here to kill you. Virginia was face-to-face with a trained assassin. What happened next would surprise both of them. Listen to Virginia's entire story on the Compelled Podcast, where they find incredible true-life stories of God working through the lives of normal people. Virginia is on episode number 31, which is titled, He Came to Kill Me. Listen on your podcasting app or at compelledpodcast.com.